Are listening to the quarter to three podcast where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the things that matter to them i am really excited to be here today with someone i've i've known and not just internet known but even kind of in real life known for a very long time uh denny atkin you know what i asked you right before we started atkin or atkins it's one atkin right there's only one of you Yes, there. Well, there is another, my father, who is also Denny Atkin, but we are both singular. Okay, you are not the plural Atkins, and you mentioned you get that all the time. So I'm not yes. alone in wanting to call you Denny Atkins. That is correct. All right. Uh, now, you and I go way back. We, uh, I think we are part of a dead breed, and that, didn't you do, you did flight sims, right? You were the flight sim guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely, actually, uh, Thought about trying to talk about one of those today, but then I really just couldn't come up with anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what? And on a broader scale, the genre at large, video gaming at large, uh, what happened there? Uh, the developers listened to the gamers <laughs> as to what they wanted and made what they asked for, and the genre died. Now you say the genre died, but uh, it does occasionally sort of kick or twitch. And uh, we get these cool games, uh, most of which I I have not seen because I sort of feel like I got left behind. Uh, do you ever try to keep up with flight sims? Like, have you played this World War One thing or A10 or any of those? Oh yeah, actually, I've played all those, and and it's it's not nearly as bad as I just made it out to be. Um, but you know, they're definitely not mainstream anymore. Uh, you know, they're. They're geared toward the core, and they've got lots of stuff there to make the core happy. Um, I, I would just love to see it go wide again so we could get some of these um, you know, Mass Effect 2 production values in a flight sim. But. Well, I have two words for you, Denny Atkin. Uh, Ace Combat. <laughs> okay, along I said in a flight sim. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever I, – I do find myself – and it's kind of a sad, pathetic moment. I do find myself every now and then like – putting one of those Ace Combat games in or or playing, uh, I think Ubisoft had these like, I forgot what they were called, something like Thunderbirds over London. It had some goofy title like that, but they're these arcade things. I occasionally find myself sitting in front of one of those thinking, I'm just going to try this and it will assuage that old, that yearning I have for flight sims. Uh, do you ever find yourself in that sort of sad, pathetic situation? I've tried that, but the whole, um, you know, I have to make 173 kills to succeed in the mission just kind of ruins <laughs> it for me. I think it was – I don't know if I'm – I might be miscrediting you, Denny, but uh, I, I this is one of these things that I picked up from somewhere, and I forgot who I picked it up from, uh, and it sort of explains to me what I loved about flight sims, uh, and I believe it came from you, but it's this idea of mastering systems within a system. Is that Does that sound like something you've ever said? Am I misattributing that? I may have said it at some point. Well, I, I'll take responsibility for it because it sounds good. Okay, let, I, then let me put it this way: as flight sim enthusiast Denny Atkin once said, the appeal—the <laughs> appeal of like these flight sims—are you've got a little wor- a world in there, even if the world is just like a, a big square arena with graphics in it, and you have to master these cool subsystems to interact with that world, even if it's like you know th- that doesn't just mean these modern sims with avionics but even if it's a world war ii sim we have to master like energy you, you know and an altitude uh i love that idea of it's a it's an open box with a bunch of 
complicated, sometimes nuanced rules, and you have to master those to 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 get around in this world. And I love that aspect of flight sims, or at least I used to. Yeah, well, and I still do. I, I've probably played more, hour-wise more Microsoft Flight Simulator over the last year than I have any other game. Um, just because I, I love to get up there, I'll download you know some crazy high-performance plane or some old World War One plane, and you know get myself in the crazy situations, do system failures, just see what it would be like to you know fly nap of the earth over Cuba and pretend it's the Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis. You know, just the sandbox thing, which you know segues well into what the other game we're talking about today. Hold that sure, thought, because yeah, uh, it's yeah. Uh, now, is this Microsoft Flight Simulator? Is it X? I forget. What's the most recent version? Yeah. of Microsoft Flight Simulator. Okay. Yeah, X is is the most recent version. And how does that look these days? I mean, it must look great, yeah. Yeah, it's it still looks good. The, it was one of those games that uh, when it shipped, everyone was like, "Wait, this thing has a slideshow frame rate!" Because everyone immediately cranked all the sliders up to full, and uh, you know they were pretty forward looking when they made it. So they've just pretty much now gotten to the point with the graphics cards and processors where you really can crank everything and have it run smoothly. I, I definitely recall in most of the flight simulator games, that's part of the, if not learning curve, at least the entry experience part you have to get over is this idea of, okay, which of these sliders am I going to be willing to leave low and which ones am I going to crank up and what is the acceptable frame rate going to be, which has a lot to do with things like at what altitude am I going to fly? Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, have you have tried then? What's the World War One uh, thing that just came out? With the oh, rise, rise of flight. And how is that? What can you what can you tell someone? What can you tell an erstwhile flight simmer about Rise of Flight? Erstwhile's the problem there um, because mm -hmm. it is it is a incredible simulation of flying World War One planes, but down to the point that they're rickety wooden and you know wooden cloth. Um, planes that were pr as much designed to kill you as they were the enemy. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're easy to fly, but they're very easy to break, too. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it, is, it is an absolutely beautiful game. They just uh, added a free patch that gives it a full dynamic campaign, so even the grognard sim guys can stop complaining. Um, and, and it's a heck of a lot of fun, but it's just not a good entry-level sim. Right. Um, because it is so realistic. Now, the A10 sim that just came out, uh, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> that only had, was it just canned missions? Uh, yeah, it only has canned missions, but um, it is such a deep simulation that anyone who's ever liked serious flight sims is just um, robbing themselves if they don't take a look at this thing. I play it like, you know those... Uh, those role-playing games where the action gets so fast that you have to pause to issue orders so there's no way to succeed. Right. That is, that's what A-10 is like. You can freeze <laughs> the game, sit there, and it's like, okay, how the hell do I aim this Maverick missile at this tank over here? And, you know, futz with the systems, get everything set up, and then unpause. Because um, the thing... I, like, I love the idea of that, but one of the things about the, the aspects of, of modern combat flight is all of that that stuff where you have to pause and manage things is like crammed into a few seconds. Like there's this idea you have to fly to the target and that's all fine. That's very Microsoft flight simulator and enjoyable and you're looking around. But all of that activity and action is crammed into a few vital moments. And that, that sort of pacing, which is, is really thrilling and there's not much like it in video gaming, uh, is mm -hmm. just so hard to manage. Uh, yeah. 
Um, so uh, I don't know if you saw, but we had uh, a game diary written by a, a fellow on the forum named Hawkeye Fierce, who is uh, also, I think, like an erstwhile flight simmer. Uh, he sampled this A-10 game and, and wrote about trying to jump into it. And I just so vicariously enjoyed that sensation of being overwhelmed by a flight sim through him. Because that's one of the things that I think most gamers today shy away from is I love – being confronted with a new game and and just being kind of overwhelmed and getting this sense like okay I need to read the manual I got to figure out what that button does I want to figure out yeah. how to do this like I and I think I'm a freak that way and is that something that you <laughs> think all flight simmers have do you have that uh, to a degree you know honestly I I enjoy about World War II era the most mm-hmm. you know where you can get in and there may be a few things to mess with here and there making sure your engine doesn't overheat and stuff but i kind of like the point you know aim the pointy end at the enemy and and, and shoot um and it's to me it's more about the flying than the mastering the systems management mm-hmm. um you know I, I greatly admire the community mods for falcon 4 that uh you know add every button in the damn F-16. Um, you, you could probably take a retired F-16 pilot who's a few years out of practice and he'd have trouble starting the thing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, th- there's something to be said for going into that level of detail. But to me, that's not the fun part of, uh, of air combat. Um, I, I, w- I want my sims to be convincing. They don't necessarily have to be 100% realistic. Sure. I just don't want something that's, that slams me in the face and says, you're playing a game. <laughs> now, do you have – here's a weird question – uh, and I'm not sure I could answer this. Do you have a favorite airplane? Uh, well, b- by default, it's got to be the F-15 because I got to fly in one. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> you did not get to fly in an F-15. I did. How does that I, work? You know what? I, uh, may, yeah, I, I may be able to it, – it maybe not top this, Denny, but maybe come within, uh, you, you know, 100 feet of it. So, so tell me how you got to fly an F-15, and then I'll see what I can do to sort of match that. All right. Well, it, you got to cut way back to 1994. I was working for the late lamented Omni magazine and um, sitting at my desk, and the phone rings. And it's a gentleman with a southern accent who identifies himself as a lieutenant – um, in the communications area at Tyndall Air Force Base. And he just basically goes straight into, we were just wondering if you'd like to come down and go for a flight in an F-15. Now, at the time I'm working at Omni in North Carolina, I hear the southern accent, and my immediate reaction is one of my friends is punking me. <laughs> so, because that would be like a dream. So, yeah, uh-huh, sure, tell me more about this. We'll see if this is something we have time for. And as he starts going into more details, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's telling the truth. This this is real. And so I he caught my breath and uh, said, yeah, I think we can uh, we, we can work an article in about this and after i hung up i went into my boss's office and said uh we're doing an article on the f-15 <laughs> uh, we're going to find a way um so yeah so i got to go down there and this is a this is a promotion to try to secure f-22 funding ah um, right I, right I, I'm, I'm not sure what the logic was in putting me in this amazing impressive piece of hardware and trying to tell me how outdated and unimpressive it was <laughs> But uh, well, I because the F twenty two would be even more amazing, you see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, um, so, so tell us how this shakes out. Yeah, so I, I get I have to get my own flight down to Tyndall Air Force Base um, in in the Panhandle, Florida, and get down there. And the first thing they do is put you through egress training, which is learning how to eject and steer a parachute. And so I spend an hour with this guy telling me, you know, you're going to have a rocket aimed right at your ass. And um, 
and and you hang from a parachute harness and he tells you, you know, don't steer into the power lines because it would really suck to get that close to the ground and then fry yourself. <laughs> and so this goes on for an hour. And then I immediately go to the flight surgeon who examines me and says, hmm, your blood pressure is high and your heart rate's elevated. <laughs> It's like, yeah, <laughs> because I just spent an hour talking about the rocket. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so so then um, I, I get in the back seat of an F-15D, which is the tra- training version of the F-15, basically the same as the frontline fighter model, except it's just got the extra seat in the back. Now, and you, on, are you are you ever nervous, or is this just like kid in a candy store excitement? It was a combination. Um, You know, I I was nervous, but at the same time, I was just so excited that I didn't care. Um, And and so nervousness because uh, like intellectually, you know how well these work, how unlikely it is that you're going to crash. Is the nervousness just because you've never experienced something like this? Like, why would you be nervous? Um, the, I, I think the egress training <laughs> kind of made me nervous. I guess they, yeah, um, with the fact that you might have to punch Elvis and uh, yeah. that, that's kind of, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they just really drill it into you that this is a possibility and you need to take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you typically when you're in an airplane, again, it is that unfamiliarity. You're not usually, you know, pointed straight at the ground, upside down, pulling seven <laughs> Gs, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so, yeah, so anyway, I get in the backseat of this thing, we took off and did a vertical takeoff to 20,000 feet, just right, riding on the engines. It was absolutely amazing. Um, then I discovered that uh, I, I, I am uh, susceptible. Oh, hold on a second. Sorry. That, that might be the government telling you you're not supposed <laughs> to talk about this. Yeah, so um, they, then I discovered that I was uh, susceptible to uh, motion sickness. I wondered I if that was going to come up. You actually <laughs> Uh, so I, I made the mistake of not throwing up. Um, if I had it to do over again, I would have, cause then I wouldn't have had to focus on that. Um, the whole flight <laughs> trying not to lose it, but, uh, it was still, it was, it was a very exciting and nauseating, um, about an hour and a half in the air. So you did um, not, you did, or you did not barf. I just want to go on I, record here. I did not barf. Did you barf after you landed? I did not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, but, so and, and it actually you did you did loops you did barrel rolls did you I guess with an F fifteen you can't very well have stick time like he never let you take the controls right he, he actually did <gasps> yeah did he, um, you've flown an F fifteen I, I have flown an F fifteen I, I got to uh, I, I did a couple of rolls I did a couple of uh, turns he pulled seven point eight G's that was the most we pulled on the flight um, I didn't do anything like that but uh, yeah, yeah. It, it it was wild. Now, I know in a video game what that means, but what does that feel like, like pulling 7.8 Gs? Is that painful? Um, it, it's not painful, but it's crushing. You're just, it's hard to lift your arms. It's hard to keep your hand on the stick. Um, you're being pushed down into your seat. And I was just starting to gray out when he finally let up. Um, the wow. vision, at the, at, it, it, it's almost like you get tunnel vision. There's a, a gray cone starts to form around it. And if he did held it a little bit longer, I probably would have passed out and then he would have had to land even if I woke up. Well, that you know, you say that, Denny, but I know that effect from, from how some flight sims try to model it. You know, the, the edges of the screen blacking into that tunnel vision. I totally know. Not in real life, but simulated. I totally know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I'm, I'm presuming there are photos, there's photographic evidence of this. 
There is photographic evidence of me um, in my flight suit with my pilot. Um, unfortunately, this was back in the dark ages of the 1990s and film and that sort of thing. And they wouldn't let me take my own camera in the F-15 because it's a hazard when you're pulling high Gs to have All something right. in the cockpit. Um, and nowadays, if you go up in something like that, there's a tiny little digital camera mounted somewhere there that can you know, take film. But they didn't do that sort of thing. Back in uh, back in the twentieth century. So, so since you've flown an F fifteen, now are roller coasters boring? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I felt safer in the F fifteen than, uh, than, than <laughs> a roller coaster because I worked at an amusement park in high school and I know just how well those rides are maintained. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, I can't top that, Denny, because that's awesome. But uh, here, here's the closest I can come. And I think I might have told this story before. So if anyone's heard it, I apologize for repeating it. But back in, again, the, the glory days of the, the press in the 90s when uh, when we were being courted much more differently than, than we are today, Microsoft had a big press event for, uh, I think it was European Air War. Yeah, that was the name of it. Uh, one of their no, World that, War II flight sims. Yeah, no, it was uh, Fighter... That was it. Dang. Uh, it was the one that was on the zone. European Air War was Microsoft or Microprose. Right, right. It was Microprose. Did I say Microsoft? I meant Microprose. Uh, oh, okay. Was, yeah, yeah. It was definitely a Microprose event, and they had us drive out to some Podunk airfield somewhere inland from Los Angeles. It was quite a drive, um, and they had some kind of I I presume it was like a T thirty eight trainer, just a basic prop trainer with two seats. And they take you up in that, and of course the guy lets you take the stick and you do some some barrel rolls and a loop and what and whatnot. Uh, but the more notable thing, I mean, going up in one of those is no big deal. The more notable thing is they had a B-25, uh, an operating B-25 that would do air show circuits there that day, and they let some of us go up in that B-25, uh, and. We, you know, you sit in it and you sit at these different stations and you're strapped in and uh, and it takes off and, you know, it just feels like a, a shaky prop plane. It's not, uh, you know, it's awesome to be in a B-25, but there's no unique sensation with it like uh, like an F-15. But what happens is once it gets airborne, the, the guy we all have headsets on and the, the guy who's flying says, OK, you can now take off your seatbelts and you can wander around. Uh-huh. So so there are like 10 of us game journalists in this B-25 just crawling over the bomb bay and sitting in the little gunner's station in the back. And that, there's that glass nose on the front. We were taking turns sitting up there. And it, it was like a bunch of kids in one of those little uh, playground things at McDonald's with all the little tubes. <laughs> and, and, and it was just amazing. And looking at the little side bays where the, the guns would normally be. Um, and I just remember how awesome that was, being up in that old prop plane, that you know, a bomber like that. Uh, so it's not quite an F-15, but, um, and, and I didn't get to fly it, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, now, now that's a special experience, especially when you're in those things and you see like how thin the, the skin on the fuselage is and, you know, how, how close you are to the elements compared to an airliner where everything's coated with plastic and super thick and, and, you know, just how vulnerable those guys were. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's not the kind of place I would want to be if something was shooting at me. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, all right, so uh, that's it for flight sim nerd reminiscences. Uh, let's let's move on to something slightly more high tech, which I really want to hear about, Denny. So I was under the impression that you had just decided with the the final launch of this space shuttle program, you were just going to bundle the family in and drive down and, and watch it take off and then drive home. That's not what you did recently. I want you to tell me what you did. What was this, a week ago? How long ago was this? 
Uh, this was last Thursday and Friday, yeah, so it would be about a week ago. So you didn't just drive down there to see the space shuttle take off. You got some kind of like special, I don't know about special treatment, but you got a special perspective on this. Tell us what happened to you a week ago. So NASA has about 1.2 million Twitter followers, and they started doing this program five launches ago called the NASA Tweet Up. And with this, they invite 150 people to come down and watch a launch. Um now, when now, they is, had, this, is this a drawing? Is it just randomly picked? Yeah, yeah, it's a drawing. So, oh. so when they when they had the drawing for STS-134, which was the previous launch, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I should really try to get down for that. And then, you know, the day that you had to enter came and went, and I missed it. And I'm like, oh well, what were the odds anyway? <laughs> and but but when I heard about the 135, when I actually set an Outlook reminder for myself, and I said, okay, I'm going to enter this time, and entered and promptly forgot about it. Um, and I had decided I was going to try to get Causeway tickets, which with there being so many people who want to come down and see the last launch, they had a lottery for those just to buy tickets to go see it. Um, I was going to try to get Causeway tickets for me and my son. So I entered that lottery and didn't get it. And I'm like, oh, well, not going to see the launch. Then I get this email with a NASA return address. And I assume it's the thing that says, we're sorry you weren't selected for the tweet out. <laughs> Open it up, look at it, and where the words you're sorry you're supposed to be, it says congratulations. And so I was just like, holy shit. So, that, that must have been like uh, winning the lottery. I mean, did that blow it, 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 it was. I mean, it's just like the, the feeling in, in my chest then and, and the excitement <laughs> and the desire to run down the hall screaming and telling everyone, you know, I'm going to Florida and it's not Disney World. Um, now, so but, hold that real quick. I want to yeah. interject here. So you, you, were, you did enter the lottery to go to the causeway with your son. Did you tell your son you were entering that lottery? Yeah, th- this is the sad part of the story. Because <laughs> here's what I think it is. You see that, and, and you've got the conflicting, awesome, I'm going, and then how do I break this to my son? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, there were 5,500 entrants and only 150 people selected, and you can't bring anybody with you because there's only room for the 150 people. So, um, so, yeah, I had to come home that day and say, yeah, you remember what I told you about the shuttle launch? Well, the good news is... Now, how old is your son? He is eight. And uh, how did he take this? Uh, his immediate reaction was, well, you're not going. Oh. <laughs> with, with a uh, – he's a budding actor, and he channeled um, perhaps you know the most evil villain that he's ever seen in a movie um, to, to get the expression on his face when he said, you're not going, too. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, he was not happy at all, and I had to explain that it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I love him to death, but – you're not my boss, kid. I'm going. <laughs> so did, he eventually comes around, I guess. I mean, he must. Oh yeah. See the picture yeah. taken to hear you talk about it. Yeah, and and, one, and once we did talk about it and what the situation was and stuff, he was totally excited for me and it was very cool. And I called him from a couple times from down there and let him hear things that were going on. And that oh, kind of so stuff. cool. All right, so so you witness, you're excited, you have to deal with the whole something. Now, how does this shake out? What is what happens? So the whole thing started now, of course, this is a tweet up. So it's all these hardcore Twitter people who are the ones who are selected to go down. So these are all people who are pretty familiar with social media. Um, They organize a Facebook group about two weeks before it happens. Ironic that the tweet up had to get organized on Facebook because Twitter was so limited. (laughs) So this is the STS-135 Facebook group? Right. (laughs) Right. Um, it got about 125 of the 150 people on there, and people start talking, finding things in common. Um, they decided to get together and rent a bunch of houses with like eight or ten people all staying in the house together. 
um, just to make it a communal experience. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little old for that kind of thing. So I organized um, a hotel that get everybody to stay at the same hotel. We got 30 people with our own beds and showers which I think was yeah, a little, little better. Um, but then we all get down there, and you know, after a couple of weeks of talking to each other, there's people you're like dying to find and meet because you feel like you know them a bit already. That Everyone's a hardcore space enthusiast. Well, not everyone. Most of the people were hardcore space enthusiasts. There was like one girl I met actually was a social media rep for a beer company, and she thought this whole thing just sounded kind of neat and cool, so she came down <laughs> to see what the big fuss was about. Oh, my God. And she got one of the 150 slides? Oh. She did. <laughs> but by the time she left, she's like... Like a NASA evangelist, she, right. she, she, yeah, you know, it, it had its uh, it had its effect on her. So um, another another yeah. dumb question. So where I don't, I'm not sure where was is this the Atlantis? Which shuttle was it? Yeah, this is Atlantis. So where did it take off from? So it took off from Kennedy Space Center down in Florida. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you, we're all. So uh, yeah. so you just go up down there. You've got you've got accommodations. You get there very far in advance. I got down the day before because coming from Washington State, I had a long way to travel, um, and you pretty much lose a day, you know, getting out to the East Coast. Right. Um, yeah, so I got in the night before, met up with a couple people, and then we carpooled down to Kennedy Space Center the next day. Normally, Kennedy Space Center, you go to the visitor center, and then to get onto the actual space center, you have to go on a tour bus. We actually were able to go get passes to drive our own cars into the space center we parked right next to the vehicle assembly building which is that enormous square building that uh used to be the largest building by volume in the world that's like a hangar at boeing um the boeing factory now but it's still just staggering in its size um and then we go out to you know when you when you watch the launch you see that countdown clock You've got the view, you've got the countdown clock, big lawn, and then the shuttle behind it. Um, right behind that clock, there's a big white air-conditioned tent set up for the NASA tweet-up. And 150 people in there, and they had a program all day long where we had the deputy administrator of NASA. We had astronauts who had flown on the shuttle before coming in. Um, we had ELMO there to do an educational program. <laughs> it, it was a star-studded day. Now, out of curiosity, if this is a tweet up thing with a bunch of Twitter folks who can't bring their kids, why is Elmo <laughs> showing up? Um, well, El- Elmo was there to do, you know, a little educational video for Sesame Street or something, um, right. you know. So, uh, yeah, and uh, they took questions from the audience for the astronauts and Elmo. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the attendees decided to uh, ask Elmo if uh, he had ever heard of a cougar. <laughs> oh god oh nice yeah. thanks to people and, and, we're, and we're like lady um you realize elmo's supposed to be like three <laughs> creepy on all kinds of levels but. now you're, you're a press guy Danny. do you ask any questions at this point do you have any questions for the astronaut oh yeah yeah i did what was uh, your question well i was a press guy and flight sim geek so um the uh first question i asked was to douglas wheelock who was uh He's Astro underscore wheels on Twitter um, and definitely worth following because he posts all sorts of cool pictures, um, lots of neat impressions of space. But um, so I asked him to describe reentry because you often hear about the launch and how intense that is and how the shuttle shakes like it's going to fall apart and how loud and the G forces. But you almost never hear anybody describe what it's like to come back into the atmosphere. Right. So. So you talked about that and how it starts out calm and then you start to see the uh, the heat 
expresses itself as flashes outside the windows, the, the, the plasma burning around the shuttle. Um, and then as you uh, start to maneuver around the, uh, dur- during the reentry, um, you know, you finally start to hear some noise and feel some G-forces. And um, he said that they, they made an initial turn as they were coming in over Seattle. And because they were turning at a, about 90 degrees, they were able to like look out the window and see Seattle. And then, you know, just a few minutes later, they were landing in Florida. It's just wild. Wow. Now, uh, I have a delicate question. I don't. Uh, during all this, it's very exciting. Uh, of course, you know you're going to see the shuttle take off. You're here talking to an astronaut. You're, you're there at NASA. Uh, does the specter of what happened to the Challenger and the Columbia hang over this at all? Is it something that people don't really, really talk or think about? Is this a moment to sort of be excited and not dwell on that stuff? Uh, is, that, is that present in any way? To a degree, there there were a couple of questions um, that that did touch on the dangers of it, and you know, it's something I thought about, of course, when I was going out there. It's just like you know, this is going to be one of the most memorable moments of my life, but you know, I, I hope it's not for the wrong reason. Right. And so right. we were all quite relieved when you know everything went off okay, and and I don't think anyone's going to rest easily until it's safely back on the ground and ready to become a museum piece. Right. Yeah, I ask that because when I hear you talk about the astronaut describing reentry, I mean, I, my mind immediately goes to what happened to the Columbia. Uh, yeah. And um, so, okay. which I actually I actually found out about the Columbia incident on quarter to three. Oh, like that? Um, like that's where? Like that's where? Where were you when you found out about Columbia? Yeah, was, yeah. That 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 day, I, I sat down on my computer. I flip open quarter to three, and there's a topic that just said Columbia question mark. I click it, thinking it was about the country. And I don't remember who it was, but someone had posted, hey, they seem to have lost contact with the space shuttle. And then I ran back into the living room and turned on the TV. And at that point, they hadn't determined what had happened. So That's right. Yeah, I remember it didn't have that sort of immediate like, – like it was a question mark for a while, wasn't it? It wasn't like the Challenger. Well, well right. more to the point, and before we talk some more about Atlantis, where were, where were you when you found out about the Challenger? That's one of those things that I think everybody knows, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this this is going to date me and make me seem really old. Um, but I was in college, and I, I, I'm right there with you, buddy. I was. <laughs> I found out in my dorm room. I remember the guys across the hall from me having the TV on. That's when I found out. So you were in college too. Go ahead. Yeah. So some of the people to tweet up were born after Challenger, so that just made me feel really old. Um, but yeah. So I um I had walked. I was on the University Activities Council that did all the concerts and bands and programming and stuff. Um, so I'd walked into the office and this guy. Um, is or, or this girl's on the phone with her boyfriend, and this guy was a real smart aleck. Um, could be a bit of a jerk at times, and and she says, "Hey, he said the shuttle blew up," and we're like, "Yeah, yeah, what's the punchline of this? That's not funny." And nobody believed it because of who it was coming from. Mm. And then we realized, wait, this is absolutely true. And then we went downstairs to the student union and uh, had to essentially wrestle the controls of the TV to turn it off of a soap opera that people didn't want us to change off of. Where, were you the, in, coverage. where the heck were you in college that that was the case? <laughs> uh, the, the University of Southern Mississippi. Okay, so which, did I- Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, which has the uh, at the time was famous for having the uh, highest per capita viewership of days of our lives in the country. <laughs> OK, well, fair enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> OK, so that so all that said, let, let's get back then to, to current day. Uh, yeah. So so they give you the presentation. So is all this like sh- like within an hour, like shortly before the Atlantis is going to take off? Has- no. So this is all the day before. 
Okay. So so we spend the morning listening to presentations. Um, then we got to eat lunch at the NASA cafeteria, which how's you the know, food at NASA? Uh, it's a government cafeteria. <laughs> it's, it's about what you'd expect from that, except for there's signed plaques on the walls from all the shuttle missions, ah. which which makes it really cool. But like the interior, I think probably had not been changed since the Apollo era. <laughs> it, it, it was like stepping back in time. Um, but after that, we went out for a tour, and uh, we stopped at the Saturn V Center, which is something that everyone who goes to visit Kennedy Space Center can do. Um, it, it's not not to minimize that. It's amazing to see that rocket. It's just so enormous. You, you can't even imagine the, the power of that thing and the size of it. Um, and we got to tour the vehicle assembly building, which you don't normally get to go in. Um, and see all the equipment they use to stack the shuttle onto the boosters and that kind of thing. Um, but then we got to go out to the launch pad, and we are standing about maybe a thousand feet from the space shuttle as it sits on the pad. And they opened the rotating service structure that protects it. And we got there, and we weren't sure they were going to open it. So we thought we might only see the external tank and the boosters. Uh, but about halfway through the time, it opens up, and just, you know, the. Um, the nerd glee around me was palpable, like deep silence and deep breaths as, as we all watched the, the unveiling of the ship. Now, I, I'm curious what that feels like. And I ask because uh, I've, I've seen like a, like a B-2 bomber at an air show. I remember uh-huh. being at an air show and having one of those do a flyover. And I don't know if it's something about the B-2. It's got that black distinctive shape, but it looked and to my jaded movie-going brain, almost like a special effect. Like, I couldn't mm-hmm. believe the reality of it, almost. It's like my brain was saying, this isn't real, it's a special effect. And it was, it was amazing seeing that thing fly over. Uh, but there was something really unreal about it. Is, is, there, is there something like that with the shuttle? Like, can, you, can your brain wrap your head around being that close to the space shuttle? Uh, I, I think it could because we'd had a couple weeks to prepare ourselves for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it, it, the size of it, um, and and looking at something that huge, and to know that that thing's about to go straight up, and and will soon be most of it will be in space, you know, the next day. Right. Um, not that we thought that was going to happen. Because on Thursday the the weather was abysmal. We had the I've been in oh. two hurricanes and this was the worst thunderstorm I had been outside of those hurricanes. It just sheets of rain coming down and there was only a thirty percent chance of launch conditions being favorable on Friday. So a bunch of us had pretty much resigned ourselves that we were getting an awesome tour of NASA and we're going to get to see the space shuttle, but we weren't actually going to get to see a launch. Oh, so they're basically telling you, they're, they're preparing you for this idea that you're not going to get to see anything, that you're going to go home because everything's going to be delayed and you're going to miss it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. What a yeah. tease. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so, yeah. So, but, but, you know, even if we hadn't, this was so cool just to be this close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, it, it was like, um, if there are any hardcore Trekkies listening to this, um, if they remember when they first saw Star Trek The Motion Picture and they had that ridiculous scene where they fly around Enterprise for about five minutes <laughs> and, and the, uh, you know, the, the Trekkie glee that they felt then, multiply that by about a thousand and you've got how these people felt. Nice. So you go home that, that or you go back to the hotel you're in that night fully expecting that maybe you're just going home the next day and that's it, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so we all hung out. We, we went and got dinner and uh, it, it, it sort of uh, they actually are doing an indie movie around the people who attended this called The Space Crowd. Um, and uh, it's supposed to be at South by Southwest next year. And 
in it definitely was a special breed of people these are just almost completely hardcore enthusiasts it's weird to normally i have to temper my knowledge of the space program because it's usually responded with oh you sure know a lot about the space shuttle don't you (laughs) you're boring me dude um but you know like there was a planetary scientist in our hotel who was freaking out about the potential cancellation of the james webb space telescope which had just come out when we were there um you know there's a girl who's studying literally studying rocket science at mississippi state university stuff like that Mm -hmm. um so we're hanging out with that crowd and we're all you know, cautiously optimistic. Then we had to, had to hit the bed reasonably early because with the million person crowd predicted in an area that normally has 500,000 residents, um, they were, they were predicting just traffic nightmare. Um, so we had to leave the house or leave the hotel Aquarius house is what we deemed it. Um, we had to leave Aquarius house at 2 AM to get to Kennedy space center in time for our 5 AM entry time. Did you sleep at all? Did you basically pull an all nighter? Um, I managed to get about two hours in. Okay. So, so I, I got, got a little bit. Um, but yeah, so, and then I woke up before my alarm because I was so excited. Yep. Yep. Um, so then we, uh, we headed out there and, uh, got everybody, we, pers- we did beat the crowd because most people weren't as crazy as we were. So a little bit after three, we we're outside of the Kennedy space center gates. And, uh, so then it turned into a big tailgate party, um, with glow sticks and donuts and all kinds of you know, stuff as everybody begins to celebrate. And um, one of the guys in my carpool is a uh, fairly well-known internet comic artist, um, Larda Souza. And so he decorated the back of my car and my, my rental car that I had to wash off later, but totally <laughs> worth it. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So then five o'clock finally rolls around and we get in and realize that um, people are grabbing tripod spots um, along the river Um for photos so i had to like rush out there and find a tight one of the tiny remaining spots to so that i could get my tripod down and be able to take a picture of the shuttle taking off and uh then that morning um the weather looked really dismal when we got there but it started to get progressively better and so it's like sense of optimism started to build and it's like is this really going to happen um we had another program we got to meet bob crippen who flew the first space shuttle um and I asked him a question too. What was your which question about him? My my question to him was about the ejection seats because the you know nowadays there's no real rescue plan for a shuttle because you've got typically seven people on it and there's just no way to get them all out short of bailing out. Um, but the first test flight they had only had two astronauts and they had ejection seats. But it always seemed to me that as big as that thing was and the speed it was moving that those wouldn't be useful for very long at all. So I asked him about that, and he said, yeah, that um, if they had had to eject during launch, that they probably would have ended up in the exhaust of the solid rocket boosters. Wow. <laughs> Which would, would have been an unpleasant situation. <laughs> so there, I guess there are panels over that, that, that not over the nose, like the, where the, the pilot and co-pilot sit, they would like pop off right. the bolts and they would eject through that? Yeah, yeah. So the top would have blown off, and then they would they would have ejected out of that. So he admitted that they would have only been useful if they'd have had, because you know they had never landed from orbit before, and if they'd had trouble during reentry and and trying to land at Edwards Air Force Base, come up short or something, he said they could have ejected then. But that would have been about the only point where it would have actually done them any good. Right, right. Uh, all right. So he comes out and talks to you. At this point, I presume that there's a there's swelling optimism because the weather's clearing. You guys think we're yeah. actually going to get to see it, right? 
Yep. Yep. And so then uh, one other really cool thing happens before this, though, about an hour and a half before launch time, uh, there was an announcement that they were gathering a group to go over to the cafeteria. And I'm like, oh, I should get a bite because I'm not going to do anything tough to launch. So I walk outside and there's a group kind of standing in a circle. And I asked one of the NASA reps, I said, is this a group to go to the cafeteria? And she said, no, they're talking to Astro Ron on the phone. And I said, wait, Ron Guerin, isn't he on the space station? And she says, yes, he is. And so I immediately wedged myself into line. And they're passing around your everyday average iPhone 3GS with a plastic flower-covered cover on it. Um, and these people are talking to Ron Guerin on the International Space Station. Whose phone was this? How did someone get a clue from him? This was, this was the NASA rep's personal phone. So... <laughs> So she calls Houston, and then they do a voice over IP connection up to the space station. Oh, beautiful! Yeah. Now, did, you, did you get some phone time? Was that? Did you get your hands I, on that little phone? I, I did. I there was one person between me and the phone, and uh, and Ron Garen said we've we've got one minute left before we have to get off. And I grabbed the camera of the guy next to me, and I'm like, I'll take your picture talking to Ron Garen if you make it quick. <laughs> so the phone gets handed to you. So the phone gets handed to me, and uh, yeah, and so I, I got a chance to talk to him. I just, uh, I, I told him uh, it was, you know, an honor to talk to him, and that I was a big fan of his website. Um, he's, he's got a website. About three years ago, he was on a spacewalk, and he looked down at the Earth and had one of those inspirational moments, just like looking at the planet, looking at what it looks like when you get above the people and what we're doing to the environment and doing to each other and everything else and, and just how special the place is. And so when he came back, he created a website called fragileoasis.org and they share, like they actually do blog entries from space and stuff to get space enthusiasts interested. But the goal of the site is just, you know, we've got to take care of this planet. It's the only place we've got. Mm -hmm. um, so I told him, you know, Ron, I'm a huge fan of your website. Um, and it's an honor to talk to you. And then I was, it, unfortunately I had to like, the, there was one more person standing next to me right. and we were almost out of time. So I had to pass it on, but yeah, just be, being able to, it, I, I was, I, I floated over to the cafeteria after that, knowing that I had just talked to somebody on the space station. That's Denny. I got to say that's up there with being in an F-15. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that was even more thrilling than that. <laughs> So uh, okay, so you, you get a bite to eat, and uh, you're still you still have this idea that maybe you're not going to see anything. Maybe you are. There's still that uncertainty. Uh, yep. Talk talk us through from there. Yeah. So so we come back, and um, we're uh, I go back to the tent, gather my camera equipment, and figure that I'll head out and set it up just in case. Um, and we're hearing different things because like a couple of the people who were at the tweet up were actually professional meteorologists. And they're looking at the conditions and saying it doesn't look good, but we're we're hearing right now the condition is green, but it's still only a 30% chance. And those two things didn't seem to mesh to me, but I'm like, okay, whatever. But we're hearing it's go, it's no go. Yeah, so I don't think I don't think on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, thirty percent counts as green. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I went out, set the equipment up, and then I told a friend of mine that I would loan her my extra lens. So I run back into the the twent, as they called it, because it's a tweet up town, not a tent. Um, <laughs> that's, I, that's, that's precious. <laughs> yes. So I run back into the twent to grab my lens, and they're doing the go no go calls through with all the different controllers. What does that and, mean? What is that? Um, th that's where they say, like, you know, weather, um, are we go for launch? Weather is go. You know, systems, go for launch, go. And like they go through about, 
Yeah, so they go through about 15 different teams and make sure that each team is saying that they're in a go condition for launch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got there just in time to hear, you know, Atlantis were go for launch. And this is about, I think, 20 minutes before launch time. So grab the lens, run back out, try my best not to, like, trip and fall unconscious right before the launch because um, I'm so excited. And uh, hand her the lens, get it all set up. And then stand there and just talking to the crowd, waiting for the waiting, you know, for everything to start. We can't see the countdown clock because I'm just in front of it between the clock and the ah. uh, the water. So we're relying on people behind us to kind of give us updates. And uh, so we finally get to the point where it's um, a couple minutes before launch, and it's like, holy crap, this is actually going to happen. Um, and then someone calls one minute to launch. And so I set up my camera. I had I had my um, digital SLR, and then I had MacGyvered my little pocket camera on top of that so that I could shoot some video at the same time. Um, so I, at 30 seconds, I start shooting with the uh, with the video, and I get ready to hit the shutter release on the on the digital SLR. Oh, wait, 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 hold that hold that thought real quick because I'm yeah. curious. So during this time, uh, can you see like activity out there? Like I presume you see them like swinging the gantries back, and how much can you tell by actually looking out there at, uh, at what's going on? The only thing that you could see from from where we were was you could see. Um, if you know, there's like this arm that goes over the top, and it has right. a little gaseous vent to to catch the, uh, I think it's the liquid oxygen. It's like a little cap that fits over the nose of the shuttle. You could see that swing back. Um, but that's it. Otherwise, it's just nothing's moving. It's 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 still three miles from the pad, but it's so big you can still see the shuttle clearly and the, right. the structures around it. But, but so we hear 30 seconds, so everything goes silent. Everyone's all excited. And then time passes, and then it's obviously been more than 30 seconds. And we start looking at each other, and there's dead silence. And then, like, a full minute has passed, and people are like, well, what's going on? You know, we're, we're like, are the astronauts in danger? Is it like that time that they lit the rockets and then had to shut them down because they ran into a problem three seconds before launch? What has happened here? Um, we didn't have any kind of – we couldn't hear the announcements on NASA TV, and nobody had thought to bring a radio or anything, so we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> And so at that point, just from from possibly one of the highest levels of excitement I'd ever felt building up, I went to one of the biggest rushes of disappointment. I'm like, oh, man, they're scrubbing. We're this close. And if they get that close, you know, they're going to be a couple days before they can launch again. So I was going to miss the launch completely. And at this point, I'm like, oh, man, well, I've had a great time down here anyway. And then all of a sudden somebody says, the clock's going again, 31 seconds. <laughs> so it, it and so then all the excitement just instantly back. It's like adrenaline, up, down, up, down. Um, and not and just turned, you, but this you can probably this is probably palpable with this whole crowd, right? Like this oh is yeah, yeah, a, a corporate sensation you guys all feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I went back and listened to my first recording when it didn't launch. Um, which is just the video is just of the shuttle sitting there, but you hear the people around start to murmur and then. Oh you know, wow. It, so, but but it stayed quiet because everyone was just so so worried and nervous. Um, but what, yeah, so when the clock starts going, it turns out that that gaseous vent arm that I was talking about, um, it had retracted, but it didn't set off the sensor confirming it. So they had to confirm it on video that it was out of the way before they could launch. And they had only had a two minute launch window at this point. So if it had gone any longer, they still couldn't have gone up because they wouldn't have been able to rendezvous with the space station. Um, so, yeah, so then they say 31 seconds, um, 
set the camera up and then at 10 um everyone out there there's you know probably there's r 150 but then there's about six or seven hundred other people around who've, who've been able to watch it from the lawn um just all start counting together 10 9 Eight. And it was just like, if you're ever, you're, you're a concert and everyone's singing and you yeah. feel like you're a part of it, it's that kind of thing. Um, and then um, you don't hear a thing. You just see the white smoke start to pool under the shuttle. And then there's this indescribably bright light under it. Um, you, you don't see on, you, the video can't capture how bright this is. It's almost like looking at the sun. Um, it's, it's uncomfortably bright just comes up under it and the shuttle slowly starts to move above the tower. Um, and then it, 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 just as it clears the tower smoke everywhere below it, the ground starts to shake and it was like a light earthquake. Um, and then about a second after the ground shakes, the noise hits and it's like, a train's going by behind you with this weird crackly noise too from the solid rocket boosters. And so you literally felt the launch that close. And now, so it's climbing at this point. How is this something that's over suddenly? Like, uh, is just time sort of slow down? Is it suddenly like it's out of sight? Uh, how long do you get to watch it go up? I know, Cause we've seen the videos yeah. Um, in the videos, it seems all very brief, but then they cut to footage of the cameras on the, the shuttle, and you don't really have the luxury there. Uh, does that moment stretch out, or does it seem like it's over suddenly? No, it, it went by way too quick. I, it, it And we had a low cloud deck that day. Oh, um, so like, if, if it hadn't been for the cloud deck, like would you be able to see things like the, the, the rocket boosters coming off, or is it too yeah. far away? But okay. Yeah, no, actually, this is the second launch I've been to. Um, what? It, <laughs> well, no, the other one was nowhere near as good. I was in another city. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So this one penetrated, um, you know, it went up and we saw it for, I'll have to go back and look at my video, but it was maybe 20, 30 seconds. And then it's in the clouds. And uh, then you're just looking at that pillar of smoke going up to the cloud. And then the, the interesting thing, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you a picture of this, um, is the pillar, of course, keeps going as it goes above the clouds. And that cast a shadow from above. So there's this really cool effect on the clouds. You see the pillar go up, and then this kind of shadow on the bottom of the cloud. Oh, like a, like a straight line, kind of. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and then it was gone. And then you know, most of us stood there, and like we took pictures of each other with the with the launch cloud behind us, um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, do people, do then, people ever... then we had, go we had to go back into the twent to watch the coverage from that point because oh, it was right. gone. Um, but yeah, no, um, back in uh, 2009, um, and this is another reason I didn't feel horribly guilty about about robbing my son of this experience. Um, he and I happened to be at Disney World when STS-129, which was also Atlantis, um, was launching in November. And they had uh, they'd moved the date to when we were there. And like I told him, you know, we've got to drive over and try to see this. Um, you know, chances are they're going to delay it. Worst comes to worst, you know, we've gotten to eat some good Southern Crystal cheeseburgers and <laughs> had a fun day driving and we'll head back home. Um, but we did get to see that launch. And um, but this was from Titusville, which was about. 13, 14 miles from the launch pad. Um, that was a completely different experience. We heard the sound in a few seconds watching from Kennedy Space Center. Um, 
at in Titusville, again, we heard a really loud sound. You could feel it. But it took like 40 seconds. Like the shuttle was already a dot in the sky before it got to us. It was kind of, it was a really cool effect. Right. Um, but because it was a clear day, we were able to see all the way up to the solid rocket boosters coming off. And does that uh, what does that look like from a distance? Like, can you just see like two little contrails peel off from the main pillar? What does that look like? Um, so, so again, with it being bright, um, it was so far, so high and so far away that the shuttle was a pretty much a point of light, um, with, with the trail behind it. But when the solid rocket boosters came off, um, they're still firing. They, they've, they're starting to burn out, but there's still exhaust coming from them, um, when they come off. So we could see the two little points of light come off on either side of it. Right. And then the uh, and then the shuttle continuing off in the distance. But yeah, whereas this was like a twenty thirty second experience, um, that one was you know a few minutes of right. literally watching it go all the way to space. Stupid clouds. I know. <laughs> That's like uh, like there have been times when I know there's like a meteor shower an eclipse or something, and the the whims of stupid weather get in the way. I hate that. Uh, yeah, living in Washington, that's a fairly frequent. Ah, yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, I want to briefly ask you, now, so you mentioned you had some, some, some pictures, you've been doing some writing. Uh, Denny, I would love to post anything you'd like to write about, about this. I would love to hear more. Uh, so uh, if you have anything more to say, if you want to post some pictures, absolutely send those to me and let's get those on the front page. This is great stuff. And I, I think it's amazing that you got to be there for, you know, this was historic. This is the end of an era in a, in a, yeah. in a literal way. I mean, what? Uh, so let me ask you, how do you feel about... Uh, being in as much of a space nerd as you are, uh, how do you feel about the end of the shuttle program? Yeah, you know, it was really a bittersweet experience, um, mm-hmm. seeing something that amazing. And, and just, you know, there, there were a lot of people crying when they watched it launch. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because it was the end of the program. It's because it was such a moving experience to see something that huge, that powerful, lift off the earth and, and, you know, and, and leave it, um, you know, not, not into deep space, but into orbit, still amazing. Mm-hmm. And having been around the people who make it happen for a couple of days, you, you really got a sense of what goes into it and what an amazing accomplishment it is. Um, and so t- to witness that, to, to be a very small part of the experience and then to know that we're not doing anything for a number of years um, that, you know, we're going back and forth and, and, you know, oh, well, we'll let the private sector do it. We'll have the Constellation program. No, we'll cancel the Constellation program and come up with something else. And, you know, Bush says we're going back to the moon. And then Obama says, nah, we might go to an asteroid, maybe. Um, seeing that lack of sense of direction is yeah. really disheartening. Um I mean, because I understand for all the criticisms labeled leveled at the shuttle program, and I, I get a lot of that, and it and it makes sense intellectually speaking. But to just have that closed and to be left in a void, like you say, directionless, it, it yeah. feels very odd. Because I grew up with at least this sense of direction with the shuttle program. With you know, I think it averaged four launches a year, so there was always something going on, and there was a sense of. You know, NASA was was doing something. It was this forward motion, uh, and there's nothing there, and it's kind of odd. It feels weird. Yeah, and you know, there are, the government is giving money to SpaceX and some of these other companies to try to get private launches going. So you know, it's not that we're giving up, but um, you know, you don't see that grand goal that yeah. that we had with going to the moon, with building a space station, that kind of thing, and. Um, 
it's it, the whole country seems to be in this thing now. It's like you know, can we afford to take care of our old people? Can we afford to pay for these all this stuff in these schools? Can you know? Do we need a space program? And it's just like you know, there, there's so little drive to advance and to go forward. It seems like um, in 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 some areas, and then you experience something like this, and you see the people who make it happen, and that's what gives you hope. Um, you talk to these super intelligent people. You talk to these astronauts who put their lives on the line, you know, not to win the Cold War or be the first to walk on another planet, but you know, just just to advance science. Um, and, and knowing that these people are out there, it does it does give you hope that uh, that we're still going to accomplish great things. But um, you know, we've got to get around the government and popular opinion to make that happen. Well, and I wonder um, too how much of it is a facet of just the recession is that we kind of don't have, you know, that cuts have to be made, hard choices have to be made. And yeah. at a time like this, something like the space program uh, kind of ends up on the chopping block. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it's a drop in the bucket compared to right, right. And, and Neil deGrasse Tyson during the uh, dur- during the launch time tweeted that the um, entire NASA budget from the founding of the agency through landing on the moon to today was the last was equal to the last two years of America's defense budget. <laughs> Jeez. But to so, be fair, there is one of those things though that I think gets brought up uh, to make politicians feel like they're making a difference. It's sort of like talking yeah. about foreign aid to countries. You know, that's yeah. it's again it's a drop in the bucket, but it's a yeah. particular thing to say, let's cut this, here's where we can save. Yeah, uh, and I, I just you know I, I feel it's the case of the, with the space program too. And I, I hate that. Yeah, yeah now it, it, it's it's just become a short term world. I mean, if you look at corporations, they used to invest. Uh, you know, th- there was a lot more long term investment, and nowadays it's all stockholder driven, and it's all about this quarter, this quarter, next quarter, and uh, it, it, it's hard to get big companies to look at the future, and it's it's hard to get the people to look at the future when they're worried about, you know, next week. And, yeah, that, that's understandable to a degree. But I just, you know, it, I hope that we will continue to strive to to do great things. Now, I have, before I move on, I have a real quick dumb question. Uh, yeah. So the dudes on the, uh, the International Space Station, how did they get down? Um. So right now that the shuttle's being retired, um, right. we're rent, we're renting rides from the Russians. Um, so do they, they just drop them from a reentry vehicle? Is that what it's like? There's like reentry yeah. vehicles that pop off of that thing. Uh, well, yeah. So they so they go up and down in Soyuz capsules, which oh, is okay. yeah, yeah, which is the Russian. You know, they they started building them in the Apollo era, and they've been they've been shooting them ever since, and pretty much got it got it down to an art. Um, so yeah. yeah. So, so in in fact, well, that was one of the uh, kind of uh, we we need to get our act together again as a country moments was when one of the astronauts they asked him what he was going to do now that the uh, shuttle program was winding down, and he said, "Well, right now I'm learning Russian." Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> and maybe you should pick up a little Chinese while he's at it. Yeah. Uh, do you uh, do you? Uh, do you agree with many of the criticisms about the shuttle program? Because, I mean, one of the criticisms is that it would have been far cheaper and more cost-effective for us to use those, like, the Soyuz capsules than designing this shuttle. Like, the shuttle program, I think, was supposed to go on. Weren't these each built to last third? Like, like the, the shuttle program was basically shut down prematurely, right? Like, they finally decided 
this is not the direction we're going to go. Even though it's still viable, we're just going to close down this way of getting people into and out of space, right? Yeah, well, they, you know, they never got the launch safety to where they wanted it. Um, right. And the program wasn't necessarily supposed to go on chronologically longer. There were supposed to be more launches because when they first pitched the program, you know, they were talking 20-plus launches a year. Right. And the most they ever did was nine. And typically it's been more like six or seven um, because it was just a lot harder to turn around the ship. Um, you know, it, it would have been nice to see us continue into space. My my, If you'd have told me when I was a little kid that we wouldn't be on Mars by now, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, you know, the shuttle can do things that, the little capsules couldn't do because it's so big. Um, you know, if you look at that gigantic international space station out there and there, there are some pictures that the, um, when Endeavor left uh, a few weeks ago, they flew around the space station and got these just amazing shots of, uh, of it up there. And you look at the size of that and, uh, you know, only the shuttle could have built that. I have uh, to say, I don't, I don't like the international space station. It looks quite like the, the shuttle is so, like sexy sci-fi looking <laughs> like the international space station and it's just this like splayed mass of solar panels i'm like that's if i was making a space station i wouldn't make it look like that <laughs> well you know the initial models were probably made with tinker toys but uh... <laughs> it does look like a tinker toy thing yeah. uh, I, will, I will say uh one one positive net effect of the shuttle program being closed uh, i think here in la we are getting i think it's endeavor but, but one of the shuttles is, is being retired out here. So I will actually get to see a space shuttle in person, uh, just like Denny Atkin. Yeah. So. Uh, all right. So that's, that's wow. I, I, I could just, I, please send me some pictures and stuff to post. I would love to see some, some of what you got out there. Denny. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to write up a couple of the cooler moments from the launch and uh, gather together some of my pictures and stuff. And I will send them your way to put up on quarter to three. So, how's this for a segue, Denny? Did you play this? And actually, this isn't forced at all because I'm seriously wondering this. Did you play the mission in Just Cause 2 where you have to chase down rockets? Yes, there's, yes. Because there's a space center on Panau, or Panau, whatever the island is called. There's a space yes. center there, and there's a mission where rockets are taking off and you have to chase them down. It, it definitely draws on this cool idea that we have of you know the, the Saturn rockets and the space shuttle and stuff like that. Did you play that mission in Discos 2? Yes, I did. <laughs> and, it, and it only took me two tries to beat it, so... I recall that one. Yeah, I recall there's a little puzzly bit to that one about when you had yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's segue then. Uh, when you were asked, Danny what game would you like to talk about? Why on earth would you pick some old, dated, open-world game that's nowhere near as good as Grand Theft Auto 4? <laughs> uh, because it's the game that I, I'm, what, 30. 37% complete on it, and I think I looked at the total number of hours I put in it, and it's like 70-plus at this point. Um, and that's that's not even counting the uh, number of times that my uh, kid has reloaded that same save game that I let him play. Um, he's probably got another 40 hours in it. Um, there's just there's something about the world that they built in that game um, and the simple go-in-and-blow-crap-up gameplay that uh, just keeps drawing me back in. 
Now, how do you feel it rates alongside like other open world games? I was being complete, just for the record, I was being completely facetious about the Grand Theft Auto comment. But yeah. uh, how would you rank Just Cause Two with how well other open world games do that? That just jump in and have cool stuff happen. Uh, you know, I think it may benefit from its story being so bad. <laughs> the uh you, you get into grand theft auto um you play some of these games and um they're open world but you're still fairly tied into uh the, the gameplay is still fairly tied to following the story along um you know you, you can run around and you, you can drive around town and, and cause havoc or go gambling with your cousin or whatever but after you've done those things a few times you know that gets pretty old and it's not very engaging gameplay um whereas in just cause 2 the gameplay that's that's outside of the missions is actually better than the missions um it and and there's such flexibility in the uh in the physics of the game in the things that you can um you can tie together or blow up to make things happen um, that, that it never feels the same. It's like, Oh, you know, okay, I'll blow this up with explosives. Okay. I'll blow this up by tethering a car to the bottom of a helicopter and using it as a wrecking ball. (laughs) I feel like uh, avalanche studios, the folks that made just cause Two, I I would go so far as to say they understand, or at least they, they seem to understand based on the game they've made better than any other developer the appeal of an open world game, like why we play these kinds of games and, and how we, the different ways we want to play them. Like they, yeah. and they've given us this game where, you know, you mentioned jumping in last night to play for a half hour and spending a couple hours there. You know, they know that sometimes we just want to mess around in the world and they give us the perfect sort of opportunity and framework to do that. And, and in that way, I think I would call Just Cause 2 the best open world game ever made. Uh, I, I, would, I would roll out the hyperbole. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you there. I've I've never played one as long as I have this one, and uh, you know I'm probably going to keep coming back until Just Cause Three comes out. Now you mentioned your son. So your son is eight. What's his first name, if I may ask? Carter. So Carter uh, also likes Just Cause Two. How does Carter approach a game like this? What does he do in Just Cause Two? Well, okay, so so I'm trying to be a responsible parent, <laughs> and not like uh, I, I did a parent's day at his school, and I'm uh, sitting there with the kids, and they're all excited to know that I work for the Xbox group, and these seven and eight year olds are telling me how much they love Call of Duty, and I'm just sitting there with my mouth agape at the parenting fail going on there, <laughs> um, and uh, and and so you know I don't let Carter play shooters, um, and I don't let him play the the ultra ultra violent ultra bloody stuff i just you know i feel like there's plenty of time for that he's eight he still needs you know some sense of innocence about the world although you know if you see the drawings any eight-year-old boy does <laughs> they've got quite an imagination for the gory and violent but uh but you know i'd like to keep it in the imagination to a degree but um just cause had such a cool environment with the cars the planes the ability to tether around and parachute and stuff and the fact that you could go into the game, and if you didn't mess with the government guys, you could just play it as an open-world sandbox and not have to get into combat. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, Carter, as long as you don't shoot anybody, <laughs> you, just cause two. You know, drive the cars, explore the world. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's like the best-looking game ever. Um, have fun, kid. And I watched him play for the first few hours, and he had a great time. And I helped him with the controls and helped him get up to the big floating casino under the balloon and, and all that stuff. And 
you know, so he was having a great time with it. So, you know, once I could see that he could handle it responsibly, I just let him play by himself. Then I come in one day and he's back up on that casino. And I had specifically said, you got to remember, kids are smart. I had specifically said, don't shoot anyone. I didn't say, don't plant explosives on them. <laughs> and I did not say, don't tether them to the top of the balloon and then push them off the side of it. <laughs> and various other creative ways he found to obey me 100%, yet wreak all sorts of havoc on the Just Cause world. I, I think Carter has a future as a lawyer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but that's that is part of the beauty of the way they built that game is it it can be like sitting down at a very fundamental level and, and playing with blocks, but you know yeah. with this elaborately built set with cars and people and all these different you know it's the, the vocabulary of how you interact with the world is not just shooting. And even though Carter found this stuff about you know the explosives, I, I think Avalanche Studios was brilliant with this idea of the grappling hook and the unlimited parachutes. Uh, you know, a good open world part of building a good open world is how do you get around that world? How do you move around? Just walking is fine, but if you can make it, if you can give the player more verbs to move around, uh, then you just open up exponentially the different ways you can experience the world. And Just Cause 2's grappling hook and parachute is just such, they have such an appreciation for what that does to how the game plays. Uh, Can Carter do that stuff? Like, can he do the... uh, there's all these tricks with how you can cover great distance with the hook and the shoot. Is he pretty good with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he's totally messed He's probably got 30 or 40 hours into the game, even without being able to do the missions or shoot anybody or any of that fun stuff. You know, you know what you need to get him to do, Denny? And I say this as a fellow uh, Xbox Live enthusiast. I'll bet you could get him to do some of those terrible like ring races for you to unlock achievements. <laughs> That's a good idea, because I, I did about two of those, and that, that's another great thing about the game, though, is that you can focus on the things that you like and completely ignore that stuff. Right. So speaking of ignoring stuff, have you, I, I forget what you, I know you said your percentage finished with the game. Have you done much storyline stuff, or did you, for, did you just like skip all that? Uh, yeah, I actually completed the core story um, months ago. You can do that fairly well, I'd say fairly early in the game. I was probably like 50 hours in at that point when I decided <laughs> to do it. But but the core missions, you know, I, I think there's, what, maybe 10 or 12 of those? Yeah, it's kind of funny how that's almost like, that's just almost like a, a side quest, you know. What yeah. would normally be the core of a game uh, is just this little thing you can do over here on the side. Uh, yeah. were, there, were there any of the missions? Because I, I really liked some of those missions. Like, were there any of them that sort of stuck out for you as, as being memorable? Uh, well, you know, the one that you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. The, the rocket launch one, um, it, unfortunately, to, to win that one, you have to fly the planes, which is definitely, I think, the weakest, uh, the weakest aspect of the game is right. actually shooting at things from the aircraft. Um, the helicopters are brilliant and wonderful, but the jets uh, really, really need rudders, and they don't have them, um, so it's darn hard to hit anything. Um, you are such but, a flight sim geek. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you 100, percent but that's that's the common reaction you're going to get when you tell that to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you need to be able to point the nose left and right. But uh, but anyway, yeah. But but yeah, just that, and especially having to do it again, and and the uh, you know the sweat as you're trying to get that last rocket the second time, and knowing that it can go awry. Um, that that one was awesome, and and, and just the over the top um, Michael Bay would be jealous um, <laughs> st- um, aspects of that final mission um, where where you're 
where you're taking out the leader. Um, yes. that, that was awesome in awesome in how ridiculous it was. How did you feel about the weird little uh, sort of lost mission? I'm thinking of the TV show where you go out to the island in the storm and something weird is going on. Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about with that one? You know, I don't think I've done that one. I don't think that's a core. Um, I don't think that's in the core storyline. And I think I still have that one on my list. In that case, never mind. Sorry. I, I'm sorry I said anything. Because that's another thing. I don't, I don't, you might be right. It might not be the storyline, but I really liked how uh, that mission, I think, was annoying to a lot of people, but I really liked how they tried to mix up the action. And they, they sort of subverted and changed the rules a little bit and forced you through this vaguely creepy mission, which didn't oh, really wait. fit. Yeah. You, you know what? I do remember that one now. It's just, okay. uh, this, this is something I played like last year, you know, halfway through. Uh, Halfway through the time that I spent on it, um, yeah. So we're, you're, you're having to take out some uh, some kind of like electronic generators, or something, like something generating interference. Yeah, so, and you're fighting like yeah. these uh, these Japanese soldiers from World War II or something. Yeah, like this, yeah. Uh, so I appreciated how different with that. That was the sort of thing where I was like, you know what? Good for you, Avalanche Studios. Even if this doesn't work 100%, you guys tried, and I admire that. So uh, I, I yeah, like that. Yeah, and you know, halfway through the game, ninjas just appear out of nowhere. You know. Oh, that's right. I'm forgetting. Yeah. That, that's the sort of thing, Denny, where I remember that moment, but I forget that that moment was in Just Cause 2. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're just like, ninjas, really? Okay. <laughs> And I don't think they ever come back. Like, it's just sort of like, you know, we're just going to toss this in. It's another thing. Like, we're going to try this. If it doesn't work, no big deal, because you're not going to have to see it again. But here, have some ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where would uh, – so, so uh, here's another – I just want to roll out some more hyperbole and see if you agree with me. I think – and I could be convinced that I, I could I could definitely backpedal from this, but I'm going to float this. Just Cause 2 is the best – graphics engine ever how do you feel about someone saying that to you i i would definitely agree with that as far as consoles go it, it's um, such an amazing piece I, of work for like the draw distance yeah. and the amount of detail as far as as far as uh dealing with those two competing requirements for a graphics engine uh yeah I, and, and, and the fact that they're able to get that level of detail up close from a distance and there's no loading um, you know, it, every time you play a game where yeah. you have to sit in an elevator for a minute and a half so that they can bring another hallway in, and then you think a just cause. It really does screw up other games for me. I mean, I, their time yeah. was, guys like you and me, hey, loading screen, that's part of the deal. But you play something like Just Cause 2, and it's just, yeah, it, it really hurts other games in a, in a way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, no, Avalanche uh, did just a brilliant job on this, and I, I'm just praying that they're quietly working on Just Cause Three. My, this is my biggest disappointment of E3 this year was not seeing that announced. Did you see what they were showing though? No, I did not. So they're working on, and I I was at a press event for Sega. Sega's publishing their next game, uh, and Sega just had all their different games showing, and one of them looked like some little twin stick shooter where you're driving a car around shooting whatever so you're going down their different little stations and they're showing you their games and i come up to this twin stick shooter thing and i in a way couldn't have cared less about it but you know i hate being the jaded press guy so i politely feigned interest and let the fella give me the demo and was asking him questions and over the course of being shown this thing and god i'm so unprepared danny because i can't even think of the name of it now uh, but i realized this is a guy from avalanche studios and this is the just cause 2 engine and this is what they're doing with it next and holy cats doesn't this look cool i was totally won over but they're basically using the engine to do a twin stick vehicle based action shootery kind of thing where you power up the vehicle and you do missions 
and I really suck because I can't think of the name of it. But but anyway, that's their next thing. Uh, and yeah, hopefully they've got some team, you know, still doing an open world game. But I really liked what I saw of their little action game coming up. So cool, I'll have to check that out. It's a, I think it's a it's another Xbox Live arcade game, like downloadable thing, published by Sega, and. Uh, I'm guessing it has a nondescript title, and that's why I can't uh, think. Of it. Maybe maybe something like Fury Road. God, you might be right. <laughs> that's a terrible. If, if so, then that's <laughs> even. Worse it, it, if I if I had just Wikipedia'd um, Avalanche Studios, that would have been what would have come up. So all right, Fury Road. That's the that's let's call it that. Let's go with that. That sounds about right. It sounds just as forgettable <laughs> as uh, yeah. Um, so I, I also briefly tell us. Uh, I, I hate to backtrack, um, but I, I want you to mention what you do for your day job. Okay, so um, I work at Microsoft's. Um, I work in the Xbox division huh? um, for Xbox.com, huh? and I'm games editor. So essentially, I, I came over to Microsoft. I actually wrote help for everyone's favorite operating system, Windows Vista, um, <laughs> break, breaking out. Saying- I thought you were going to say Bob or something like that. So. <laughs> no, no. Um, no, but but I broke out my nascent technical writing skills for that and did that for a couple of years. And that, that was absolutely fascinating to see what goes into um, creating Windows. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a uh, position opened up on the Xbox team. And, you know, having done gaming for so long and, and loving it so much, I, I had to get back to my roots. So So I came over here. Just working on the website, uh, and I'm kind of still doing the editor thing. I'm deciding what we put up, um, work with some of our people to write articles about games that are coming out, that kind of thing. Um, there's a little bit of a support aspect to it. Um, but the cool thing about the job is the job has changed a lot as live has changed. Um, you know, live used to just be a way to find friends to play online with. Now there's all this video and other entertainment stuff, and one of the things we launched gosh, it's been about three years ago now, was the Inside Xbox channel, where we actually do custom videos, uh, things like the Connect show um, and Insider Moves, which is a tip show that I do with Ryan Trite. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm a co-host on that, and we just every week will uh, do tips on uh, on some new Xbox game. What was your most recent show? Uh, you know, I've actually been on break for um, the past... Uh, past month or so because of the travels I've been on and uh, and some changes in formats and stuff. But I think the most recent one I did was um, oh man, I'm still jet lagged from the shuttle trip. <laughs> well, let me throw um, this at you. Do you know what no, you have? Oh, oh, wait, okay. Um, yeah. Wait. Re- it's, it's like the best Connect game I've played so far. Res sequel. Um, oh, oh uh, uh, Child of Eden. Child of Eden, thank you. Yes. So I did a, so, so we changed it for the first two and a half years. It was just Ryan and I going back and forth on one game. And we changed the format a couple months ago to where Ryan is doing the hardcore, I can sit in my office and play a game for 15 hours to do some tips, <laughs> um, tips for a core game. And now I'm doing coverage on, uh, on the more broadening um, or cool indie Xbox live arcade games, that sort of thing, just to get a little more variety in the show. So I want to ask, do you know what you have coming up next? Or, or can you even say? I don't know if you can say. Um, you know, because like I said, I'm on a little bit of a break because I've been okay. traveling. I, I actually don't know. Let me then ask but, you this. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll be back on the show right around the beginning of August. Will you guys do anything with like the summer of arcade games? And specifically, there's one game I want to ask you about. Uh, have you seen or will you be able to see Bastion? 
Um, yeah, I'm actually hoping to start playing Bastion very soon um, so I can get some coverage up on Xbox.com, and we might be able to get something on to... Uh, on Insider Moves about that. Yeah, the summer of arcade games are usually so awesome that we try to give, give them all the coverage yeah. that we can. Um, that one's good. And then there's the, um, what's oh, From Dust. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's later. Yeah, I think Bastion is the 19th and, or the 20th, and From Dust is the 27th. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely. Well, since, ever since the populist days, I've loved the God games. So, And that one looks really intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of those things, though, where I based on who's making it and what little I knew about it, I just decided to stop reading or hearing anything about it and, and wait until it comes out. So I've had the 27th marked on my calendar for, for a while now. Uh, but so I just want to... Preview approach, huh? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, do you know, I just want to throw this at you, do you know what a treat you're in for with Bastion? Uh, not really, no. I've, I've, I've seen the screenshots and read a little bit about it, but I haven't seen it in action. Yeah, you have no idea. I just want to say I can't I can't wait to hear what, what you think of that. I fell in love with it. That was another thing when I saw it briefly at E3, and I was like, yeah, this looks cool. And I started playing it last night and just fell in love with it. Bastion is so cool. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you uh, maybe get to do something with that. Um, nice. I also, I also want to say, uh, I, I, you know, I do feel okay saying this. Uh, I really, really like what you guys are doing with Xbox Live and how, you know, for all the people that complain, eh, there's ads, I don't like, you know, bring back the old Blade system, uh, you know, compared to what, say, Sony is doing, and not even talking about their outage, uh, just as far as, like, trying to build content and create a welcoming place when you drop in, uh, you know, for all the guff that I give Microsoft about things like those silly avatars and Kinect and whatnot, uh, I just love what they do with Xbox Live, and uh, I know you're part of that, so just a, a you know, a hat tip to the, the great work you guys are doing. Uh, and well, I, you must be very proud to be a part of that. So. Thanks. Yeah, I am. I mean, and, and the reason it is so cool is just the the team here is just, you know, they're all hardcore gamers. Um, you know, people just have their gamer tags on the door. They don't have their names. Um, and, you know, so the stuff that's on the service is the stuff that, you know, we want, that we, that we want to see. And just the passion that's around it um, in, in the time that these people put into it, um, I, it, it's an honor to be part of this group. Um and, you know, pe- people people don't like, you know, I don't like to pay for anything that I can get for free. I'm the same way. But, you know, that does, re- there's a, so much invested in making the service really great. And, you know, there's cool stuff going down the road that I wish I could talk about. Um, so, yeah, it, like it's what? a fun gig. <laughs> I'm losing you, Tom. <laughs> so, real quick, before we go, are there any games coming out recently that you're super looking forward to? This might be a terrible question to spread on you since you've been away for a while. Uh, what Do you have any dates marked on your calendar, Danny Atkin? Oh, man. Um, I ha- Having had the opposite reaction to Mass Effect 2 that you did. Um, <laughs> still- You're not alone, Danny. I mean, I'm the, I'm the outlier here, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm still reeling from that being delayed into next year. Um, but yeah, now there's uh, it, it, it's uh, again shuttle jet lag. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I, so. I could prepare for the question, but right now I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I know how that goes. Every now and then someone will ask me, "What do you play lately that you recommend?" And I just lock up. <laughs> it's like I have to be rebooted at that point. I'm not. I'm not always ready to access those files. So uh, fair enough. Uh, well, Denny, I've really appreciated hanging out with you today. It is so, I, 
I just I was so glad to hear about you going to get to see the final shuttle launch, and that was so cool hearing those stories. And I look forward to posting anything you'd like to write or show us. So uh, thanks for hanging out with me today. Hey, thanks for letting me, Tom. All really right. appreciate it. Take care, Anthony. All right, you too, Tom. Thank <laughs> you.